so like I said earlier, we're going to finish the Lord's Prayer, and, and we have, we've really spent a lot of time on it, I'm aware of that. We, we have been very thorough in our inspection of how Jesus has taught us to pray, right? And it's needed, right? I mean, we, we need to know how to pray. We've talked about this several times before, that prayer is probably one of the most powerful yet untapped resources that the church has, right? Many of us struggle with praying, and so that's what Jesus is doing here in this passage. He is teaching us how to effectively and correctly go before our Father in prayer. Um, I don't have time to really go through a lot of recap, because what we're going to talk about tonight is, uh, is going to take a lot of explanation, uh, a lot of defining of some things, because this is probably, for me, one of the most one of the hardest parts of the Lord's Prayer that we're going to talk about this evening. So what I, what I do want to do is before we get into the explanation and digging into the text, I do want to remind us of a couple of things. Uh, the Lord's Prayer, the main point that Jesus is trying to get across to us uh, in the Lord's Prayer and teaching us how to pray is, first of all, about having the proper perspective when we go before God in prayer, mm-hmm. right? You've got to get your mind right before you go before God in prayer. I mean, not to say that God doesn't hear these urgent prayers and prayers made in passing, but the point of the Lord's Prayer is for us to be focused in on several things. First, who God is. You've got to know who you're talking to, right? We've been over that the last several weeks. And you've also got to know how to appropriately go before Him in prayer. What's the most important thing when I pray? And he shows us over and over and over, it's his kingdom, it's his will, it's his glory above and beyond our petitions. Not to say that he doesn't desire to hear our petitions, he does. Jesus teaches us how to pray for those, but all those things have to be put in the right perspective. And if we do that in the wrong perspective, he says we're just like the hypocrites, right? The Pharisees, and our prayers are offered in vain. And so we don't want to, we don't want to do that. We don't want to waste our time. We don't want to waste God's time with vain, ineffective prayer. So tonight we're going to look at this final petition. And we've got to understand that prayer um, isn't accomplished through mere words, right? Jesus is not saying, just repeat these words and everything will go great, right? It's not about the words of the prayer, it's about the heart behind it and the power that comes when we approach God appropriately. So what we're going to get into this evening as Jesus begins to say, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil, is this final instruction on, on the, one of the final petitions we need to go before God and ask Him. But here's the thing. This last petition leads us into something known as a paradox. What's a paradox? Anybody know? You heard that word? It's a paradox. Two opposites. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Yeah, that's good. It's basically a, it's a seeming or apparent contradiction. So a paradox are two things that shouldn't go together, right? And they seemingly contradict one another, but, but they don't always. Paradoxes don't always contradict each other. And here's why we need to go through this and to discuss what a paradox is, because in, in the Christian faith, this is a huge problem for a lot of believers. When we come across passages of Scripture that seemingly contradict another passage. We, we, we get messed up, right? We stumble over those, and especially when we have people who try to debate us, atheists and, and the like, they get us with these paradoxes, right? And so the way that we combat that, these seeming contradictions in Scripture, is with something known as correct hermeneutics. That's just a big church word that just means correct interpretation of the Bible. We've got to know not only what the Word says, but how we interpret it matters greatly, right? God's Word is His clearest explanation of God Himself. So in order for us to know who God is, we've got to correctly interpret what God's Word says, right? And so that's why we go through, on Wednesday nights, that's why we go through the Scriptures so slow. That's why we go through one verse at a time. Because words matter. And if we're not careful and we don't interpret things correctly, it'll throw our whole perception of things off. And a lot of times it can shipwreck our faith if we're not careful. So I know that, you know, y'all come in here and say, oh, great, one, one verse. I know that can get kind of monotonous. But, man, we have to be very careful 
that we have a correct understanding of who God is. And so the way we work through these paradoxes um, in Scripture is, is, first of all, we gauge what we read based upon other passages of Scripture. We line them up, right? And then we take that and we line it up with the character and nature of God. Okay? What do we know about God? How has He acted throughout the course of history? And how does this passage confirm that, not contradict it? God's Word will never contradict the nature and character of God. Why? Because His Word is a reflection of who He is. And so it's so important that we have correct interpretation. Correct interpretation of the Scriptures brings about fruitful application of the Scriptures, which in turn helps us walk this road of sanctification correctly. So your spiritual maturity and your, and your intimacy with God is hinged upon our correct interpretation of the Scriptures. So that's why we need to take time to really go through this and dig really hard. So here's my goal tonight. My goal is for us to clearly define what Jesus is saying here in this last petition. What exactly is He telling us to pray? And then I want us to see how this applies to us and then how we're to apply it in our praying correctly. And then if we have time, which I think we will, we're going to end with the end part of the Lord's Prayer that's not in most of your Bibles, but we know it, right? What's the end of the Lord's Prayer? After he says, and lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil, what? For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Most of your scriptures won't have that. If you have a new King James, it will probably have it. If you have a King James, some King James have it. But it's left out. But we're going to talk about why that's important for us to remember. So, Matthew 6, 13. Let's uh, see what it says. And let's just dig into to what Jesus is telling us to pray. He says, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. So here's the first thing that we need to understand about this petition. Jesus is still talking about sin here. The previous passage last week, we talked about forgive us our debts, right? As we forgive those who are indebted to us or who have sinned against us. So he's still talking about the issue of sin. Last week, we talked about how we get our past sins forgiven. Right? How do we get our sins forgiven? Who's able to forgive sins? Jesus. Jesus, right? We can't forgive ourselves. We can't undo our sin. They must be forgiven. God is the only one that can forgive sin. And so he does that through his son Jesus. Therefore, because we have been forgiven, we forgive those who have sinned against us. Right? So Jesus is talking about pardon for sin. This next petition we're going to talk about tonight is referring to protection from future sins. So when we're praying, God, lead me not into temptation, we're asking God to protect us from committing future sins. One pastor uh, cleverly alliterated this passage, the Lord's Prayer, by saying that when we pray, we're praying first for God's provision, give us this day our daily bread, then we're praying for God's pardon, forgive us our debts, and then we're praying for God's protection as we pray, forgive or lead us not into temptation. So that's the that's my Southern Baptist part of this message tonight. There's the alliteration for you, and we we can move on from there. Now, here's where we need to spend some time because on the surface, when we read this, it appears that Jesus is teaching us what to pray that God would not lead us into temptation. That's what it says, right? But I want you to I want you to notice something. Why might that be incorrect? When we pray, lead me not into temptation, why might that be an inaccurate perception of God? Okay, two things, and that's one, that's the first one. If you've got your Bibles, go to James chapter 1. I want to read that passage to you that you guys have already quoted to me. When we hear the word temptation, what immediately comes to our mind? What word is really closely associated with the word temptation? Confrontation. Confrontation, okay. Sin, right? Temptation has a negative connotation, right? When we hear I'm being tempted, it's always in a negative way, right? But here's the problem with that. Um, James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted... 
I am being tempted by God. Right? I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and He Himself tempts no one. So what is James saying here? God cannot be tempted to sin, neither does He tempt others to sin. Right? It's not in His character. And this is an important character trait that we need to understand about God. Um, if you see... Um, Men, if you see some beautiful woman and she's flaunting it in front of you, God didn't put her there, right? When David went out on the roof, God didn't lead him out on the roof. He went out there on his own, okay? God does not tempt us to sin, all right? So, what does this mean? So, to go back to Jesus' words in Matthew 6, it doesn't make sense for us to pray for God not to lead us into sin if he, in fact, can't do that anyway. It's rhetorical. It doesn't make any sense to say, God, lead me not into temptation when God, in fact, cannot or will not lead us into temptation. So the question is, has Jesus then contradicted the very character and nature of God with his prayer? Well, here's where words get really important. And here's where we need to understand the correct meaning of words. The word that Jesus uses here in Matthew 6 um, for temptation is called Parosmos. It's a Greek word which is more correctly translated to say or to mean testing mm-hmm. or trial. Okay? Um, our English language, when things are translated into the English language, they lose a lot of meanings. If you've ever studied a different language, you understand what I mean by that. Um, words in Spanish have completely different understandings or meanings than they do in English. And so when this was translated, from Greek into English, they used a, a very weak translation. So, when we read this, we are to read it as, lead us not into testing or into trials. Okay, that's the more correct uh, depiction of it. But, here's the thing. Jesus is saying, lead us in, not into testing, because God can't tempt us to sin. So, here's the second issue. There's two issues with this. So yes, God doesn't tempt us to sin, but Jesus is also saying don't lead us into to, to trials. Go back up to James uh, 1, verse 2. James 1, verse 2. He says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet, what? Trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness and let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So here's the thing. Jesus is saying, pray that God will not lead you into testing. And James says, count it joy when you are tested. Because why? Because your faith is made complete through those trials. So we have another paradox, right? So what do we do with that? What are we supposed to do with that? Maybe James has missed something, right? Maybe he's missed the, the correct interpretation. Maybe he's misinterpreted something. And, and that's a lot of common logic for Christians as well. James got it wrong. We'll believe Jesus over James, right? Here's the problem with that. You can't call the word of God infallible and true if you believe this part and not this part. Amen. Why? Because God's word doesn't contradict itself, right? So both of them have to be right. Well, how? How? Well, let's keep going. Maybe James got it wrong, so let's, let's look at Peter, 1 Peter chapter 1. Maybe James was sick on the day that Jesus taught this, so we'll see what Peter has to say. 1 Peter 1, verses 6 and 7. Peter says, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Peter said the same thing. Rejoice in your trials. Why? James says because it perfects your faith. Peter says because it brings glory to God. So maybe they're both wrong. Apostle Paul, 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Flip over there with me. 
2 Corinthians chapter 4. Verses uh, 16 and 17. Paul has just listed all of his afflictions, all the trials that he's been faced with. And in verse 16 he says, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So now... James has said, count it joy when you face trials. Peter has said, rejoice when you face trials. And Paul has said, these trials that I have faced are light and momentary because they are preparing for me what? An eternal weight of glory. So now my eternity is affected by the trials that I go through. And so what does he say? He says, because of that, I don't lose heart. The Greek in that is meaning to turn away or to back down. So Paul's saying, I don't back down from trials. I don't run away from them. I go into them because I know that they are preparing for me an eternal weight of glory that far exceeds anything that I may go through here on this earth. So what do we have? Three of the top apostles of Jesus Christ have said trials are good. Trials are good. Trials accomplish something. And yet Jesus himself is saying, pray that God doesn't give them to us. So, is Jesus mistaken? Matthew chapter 4. Go to Matthew chapter 4. We'll show you this. Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. Jesus has been baptized. Immediately after being baptized, he is... Uh, taken away. And listen to what he, where he's gone. Uh, then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to what? Be tempted by the devil. All of these are the same Greek word in every passage. The same Greek word, parosmos. Now, here's what I want you to notice about Jesus' encounter. Who led him into the wilderness? The Spirit of God. Led him into the wilderness to be what? Tempted by whom? So, Jesus himself lived the exact opposite of what we think he's saying in Matthew chapter 6. He's telling us to pray that trial, that we wouldn't be led into temptation when he himself was led into temptation and played a vital part in his ministry, right? So, what do we do? How do we reconcile this? It's in the hermeneutical understanding of the text. It's not in how we read it on the surface. It's how it is to correctly be interpreted. So here's how it's to be interpreted. Look at the second part of Matthew 6, 13. Lead us not into temptation, but... Here's the, here's the converse. But deliver us... From evil. Again, it's another weak translation here. Um, instead of deliver us from evil itself, the, the noun form of the word evil is actually meant to be a person. So what he's saying is, lead us not into trials, but deliver us from the evil one. Matthew chapter 4, he's led into the wilderness to be tempted by whom? The evil one. The evil one. The tempter. Jesus is not the tempter. God is not the tempter. Satan is the tempter, right? So, here's where we need to understand about this, this verse. While God is not the one who tempts us to sin, he is responsible for the trials and testing that are brought into our lives, okay? He's responsible for that. However, Satan is at work in those trials and in that testing as well. And his desire is to use that testing to pull us into sin. So here's what I want us to see. The trial and the testing is not to be avoided. The sin that can come from those trials and testing is to be. Well, how do we do that? Let's keep going. Jesus is telling us, well, I want to put it all together for us and then I'll explain it. Jesus is telling us to pray that God would not lead us to a trial or to a testing that Satan would use against us 
to pull us into sin. That's what that verse means. That's that last petition. We are to go before God and pray, Father, do not bring a trial into my life that Satan will use to lead me into sin. That's what he's saying. That's the purpose of this last petition. Remember, this is a prayer of what? Protection. Protect me from future sins. Lord, I don't want to get to a place where I sin in the future because you have not protected me from the evil one. Now, all this hinges not upon God and His willingness to not lead us into trials. Trials are good. It's also not hinged upon Satan and his ability to tempt us into sin. Our, 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 it is all hinged upon our perception of the trial that we're going through. How are we looking at this trial as Christians? What's our mindset concerning this trial? Jesus made a powerful statement about this very thing, and he illustrated it. Go to Matthew 26. I want you to see this. This is, this is powerful. Matthew chapter 26. This is the perfect illustration for what he's teaching us here in Matthew 6. They've already had the, the Lord's Supper, and now he takes them somewhere. Where does Jesus take his disciples after the supper when he's on his way to the cross? Where does he go? The garden. He's taking them into the garden of Gethsemane. And he's going to there, going there, and he, here's what he says. Stay here and do what? Watch and pray. What? So that you will not enter into temptation. Now, why do you think that prayer was going to be such an important part of their lives in this moment? What was getting ready to happen? What was getting ready to happen? He's going to be, you know, Judas is going to give him a kiss mm -hmm. to let him know. Going to be betrayed? That's right. Jesus was about to go. That's right. Jesus was about to go into the biggest trial of his life. But not only Jesus, but the disciples were about to go into the biggest trials or testing of their life. You remember what Jesus said to Peter? He said, Satan is asked to do what? To have you so that what? He can sift you. I mean, he knew what was coming. And Jesus prayed for him so that what? So that when you are restored. We'll get to that in just a second. So here's, here's this, this, what I wanted to read to you. 26 verses 40 and 41. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. He's told them, I want you to pray. And they're sleeping. And he said to whom? Who did he say to? Who did he individually call out here? Peter. Listen to what he said. So, could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. So who did Jesus address? Peter. What did he say? Two things. Watch and pray. The way we battle against temptation is not through willpower. It's not in avoiding the temptation of the trial. It's through what? Prayer. Watch and pray so that you will not enter into temptation. I wonder if Peter thought back to the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said that that night. I doubt it. Because of what happened. What happened? Jesus hit it right on the head. Here's what he said. The story goes, Peter entered into temptation three times. And he failed every time. Right? He was pulled into temptation to sin. The trial was not the evil part. Right? Peter had an opportunity. We'll talk about that in just a second. But he was pulled from that trial into temptation to sin. How? What happened? Why did Peter deny Jesus? What was the sin that caused him to deny Christ? Fear. fear. Satan entered his mind and caused him to fear men, which was the sin. And I believe Peter had an opportunity to turn that test into something that would bring God glory and that he could rejoice in, right? Right? 
But Jesus nailed it on the head in the garden as to why he didn't do that. Why he didn't take that trial as an opportunity. Why he allowed it to turn into temptation to sin. Why? Here's what he says. The spirit is willing. We want to do what's right in our heart. But what? And our flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak. Listen to me, folks. Every test, every trial that comes into our lives serves multiple purposes. It can be an opportunity to trust God that He will do what's right in our lives. It also opens us up to the power of Satan to tempt us to sin. And a trial also shows us how weak and vulnerable we are on our own. Yes, sir. I have a question. Uh You know, as you read to us a while ago, it told us to watch and pray. Yes. Uh, Jesus told Peter before it happened, Uh you're going to deny me three times. Right. Why could he not have been watching Mm -hmm. while he was praying Mm -hmm. see those temptations coming to him? I I think... What, What would help us to watch? Yeah. That, that, that phrase, to watch, literally means to be alert. Mm-hmm. Okay. To, to know what's going on. And, and I, the answer to your question is, the spirit is willing, but the, the flesh, flesh is weak. weak. Think about what was going on in the garden. Think about all that was getting ready to happen. Mm. And when it went down, it went down. A mob shows up. Peter panics, cuts an ear off a guy. Yeah. You know, somebody got stripped naked and was running through the garden. I mean, it, all that was going on. And the flesh is weak. It became an emotional thing. It became a a, a chaotic moment. And in those moments when our flesh takes control, we don't watch. And our spirit is weak. And that was predicted 100 years before it happened. That's right. That's right. So, could Peter have avoided it? Well, that's a sovereignty issue, and that's a sermon for another night. So we'll talk about that later on. um, So the point is this. Every trial in our life is either an opportunity for us to grow, to be more like Jesus, to walk this road of sanctification, or it's one more opportunity for Satan to wreak havoc in our lives by leading us to sin. Every trial in your life does those two things. Here's the difference between the two. is the presence of God and our perspective of the trial. How do you look at that trial? That God's got you in. What what are you doing? How are you reacting to it? Let's talk about that for just a little bit. Think of some trials that that come into our lives, man. Sickness. Loss of a job. What else? Death of a loved one. What, what, What tends to be our human reaction to those things? You lose your job. You got kids and a mortgage and car payments and bills. Stress. Stress, which when stress is allowed to take root, leads to what? Can be the alcoholism, drug abuse, abusing your wife and children. Yeah, I wasn't going that deep, but you're right. <laughs> Worry. Depression. Depression, right? It didn't get you to blame God. And so where does the sin lie? In the losing of the job or in how you react to those things? This is what Jesus is saying. That's right. Lead us not into temptation. Look, look don't put us in a trial that, that we're going we're gonna to look at it and blame you in sin. The sin is not in the trial. The sin is in your perspective of the trial. So, here's, here's how, how this prayer applies to our life. We're not to go around looking for trials to jump into, right? That's just ignorant. We don't do that. You're not a glutton for punishment spiritually, right? We don't run headlong into things on purpose because that opens us up to being vulnerable to the power of Satan, right? We are not stronger than Satan in and of ourselves. He will win. If left to our own devices, right? So we don't run into it going, come on, Satan, what you got, right? We don't do that. But neither are we to go around trying to avoid the trials of this life. Why? No one likes pain. 
No one likes loss. No one wants to suffer. But here's what we've got to understand about the Christian life. Unless we walk through those things, unless we walk these journeys, this journey of suffering and pain and loss, we cannot become like Jesus. The Bible says that we are made perfect, what? Or Christ was made perfect through what? Through suffering. It's only in trials are we able to die to ourselves so that we can live through Him. We need trials. We need those things in our life that make us step back and say, oh, this is too big for me. Because only then are we able to become less and less and He is able to become greater and greater. We need these trials. But the only struggle here is whether or not we will take that testing and use it to bring God glory or will crumble under it and sin against God. And so what is the answer? Lead me not into temptation. Plead with the Father that whatever trial He leads you into that he will give you the security and the confidence that he is going to be there with you and see you through to the other side. That's what the prayer and the petition is about. Don't let Satan come in and tempt me to sin. How, how might he do that? We, we talked about he can lead us to worry. He can lead us to fear as he did with Peter. He can lead us to anger. But I want you to go back to the garden, Adam and Eve. Here's his main tactic. What did he do with Adam and Eve? Remember what he said to Eve? Did God really say that? Did, did God really say that? Yeah, look, I, I know God showed up for this person and he showed up in the Bible in all these situations, but you ain't Abraham. I, I know God is faithful, but he's faithful to everybody else. That's what Satan does. And he begins to cast doubt in our minds. But you know what? There's another sin or there's another tactic that Satan uses that I think is more dangerous than that. And I think it's one that we fall prey to. I do, especially. And I want you to hear this clearly. And we've got to preach this to ourselves. We've got to preach the truth to ourselves according to this. Satan's biggest weapon, I think, among believers is not so much temptation. It's not so much the casting of doubt, even though that's very effective. Satan accuses us. He accuses us. He is known as the accuser. And Satan's biggest weapon against us is when he comes for us and he reminds us of who we used to be. He reminds us of past sins. He reminds us of the lack of faith we now have. He reminds us of all those inadequacies. And so what he does is he accuses us. He throws guilt back in our face and we are guilty I guarantee you if I were to ask you guys to raise your hand if you felt guilty right now everybody would raise their hands about something we all feel guilty about something you know why we said it last week because we're guilty we're guilty people there's nothing in my life that I have done sin wise that I can say Somebody else made me do it, or it wasn't my fault. We're humans. We're guilty. But here's the thing. Satan is right when he accuses us of our guilt. We are guilty. But he's forgotten the most important part. We've been forgiven. Martin Luther says this, and I'll, I'll butcher it because I don't have it in front of me, but he says, when Satan throws up our sin in our face and tells us that we're not worthy and we're guilty, we are to say, you're right. What of it? For I know the one who died in my place and pleads for me. And by his stripes, I'm healed. So here's what we've got to understand. Here's how we combat this. We are guilty. But Jesus paid the penalty for our guilt. And because his blood cleansed us from all unrighteousness, we now stand before God not guilty. In the courtroom of God, 
We stand before Him, before Jesus, and God brings these accusations before us, and He says, how do you plead? We have no choice but to say, I'm guilty. As a matter of fact, we can't become Christians until we admit we're guilty. But it's only in our admitting of our guilt, Jesus comes in and He says, they are guilty. But I'll take their punishment. That's the gospel, ladies and gentlemen. That's what we've got to preach to ourselves every day. In the situation that you're in, the trial that you're in, listen, it's not because you're, you're guilty. Jesus took care of that. Romans 8, 33 and 34 says, Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is He who condemns? If God has set us free from guilt, Satan has no right or authority, or power to bring that up to us again. Amen. And folks, I have to tell myself that daily. Because I am my own worst enemy when it comes to guilt. I know who I am. But God knows who I am too. Amen. And he gave and Jesus one, for me. One yes, of the ma'am. verses in Revelation that I enjoy is that he says that we overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Yes, ma'am. Mm-hmm. That's how we overcome Satan. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Believe in the blood and that's justify. Right. That's exactly right. So, and we justify to ourselves, tell ourselves who we are in Christ. Mm. Everybody Amen. else. Amen. We don't have to listen to the others, like Randy says, stinky thinking. Yeah. We've got to believe what God says. That's right. That verse is always helpful. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. You think about what he, think about what Satan did with Job. Exactly. <clears throat> he went before the throne mm-hmm. and he said, let me have him. Let me have him. And God said, okay. You can have him. Don't touch him. But you can have him. God allowed that trial to happen. But it wasn't so strong that Job slid into temptation. Like his wife did. Just curse God and die, Job. He said, I will not. I will not. Right? So here's what this means for us. And here's what we've got to understand. If God is faithful and strong enough to cleanse us of all sin, He is certainly strong enough to be faithful and see us through our trials so that we don't fall into the temptation to deny Him. Satan is a liar. Um, And the only way that a trial can turn into sin for us is when we choose to believe Satan over God. It's the only way that we can fall into sin during our trials. And as we progress further in the Sermon on the Mount, we're going to see some instances of that. And God reminds us, Jesus reminds us very gently that, you know what, there's no need to worry. Because if he takes care of lilies and birds, he's got you. There's no need to fret or be angry. He loves you. And he gives good things to his children. Jesus gets into that later on. So, how do we take this and apply it to our lives? How do we get to this place where we look at the trials and the temptations in our life and we use them as opportunities to bring God glory instead of allowing them to become stumbling blocks that lead us into sin? By doing exactly what Jesus said. Pray. This is a prayer of protection. God, protect me. Father, please protect me from looking at these trials that you are allowing in my life. Keep me from sinning by doubting you. There's the sin. And Jesus is telling us to plead before the Father that he would protect us from that doubt, from that worry, from that anger. But there's two specific verses that um, God has given us in his word that I think will help us make this petition more effectively. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. Um, it says no temptation is overtaking you that is not common to man what that means is that you, you have not come under some new temptation uh, this is not something that God's up in heaven going oh I hadn't seen that one before <laughs> no temptation is coming to you that is not common to man and here's the answer here's what God does to that common temptation God is faithful isn't it, isn't it great that he says, he doesn't say God is faithful when you're faithful. 
When you're tempted, God's faithful. And here's what He's going to do. He will not let you, He will not let you be tempted, what? Beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape so that you may be able to endure it. I encourage you to memorize that. Amen. And then another one that's My really... Help me. Yeah, well, yeah, that's true. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. This is one that I, I've been meditating on a lot here lately. He says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. And here's how we do that. Looking to Jesus the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, endured his trial, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Do you want to see what it looks like on the other side of your trial? Look at Jesus. Jesus shows us what it looks like to come through a trial the right way. He, he was beaten. He was bloodied. He was healed he rose on the third day and the Bible says he's at the right hand of the Father there is nothing in this life that can come over you as a Christian that can take the most important things from you yes houses come and go health comes and goes people die but you know what I preached this a couple weeks ago at a gentleman's funeral Jesus said in John chapter 11, if you believe in me, you will never die. Amen. You know what that means? His body wears out. But if you're a Christian, what Jesus has secured for you, he has secured forever. And you can't lose it. And that's what really matters. And so there, there are trials, buddy. And there are temptations. And they're real. And they hurt. But there is nothing that compares to what he has secured for you in himself. And what God has secured for you, no one, not even Satan, can take away. So what we find here in this final petition is the same truth we found through, throughout every part of the Lord's Prayer. It all depends on God. Just like I need him for my daily bread, just like I need him to forgive my sins, I need him to protect me from the temptation of falling into future sin. And that's confirmed in the last part of the Lord's Prayer. And we talked about this, that a lot of translations don't include this, but most scholars agree, and I agree too, that it should be included because it is a perfect declaration. It's a perfect ending to what this prayer is saying. It's called the doxology. It's actually called a doxology. It's actually called a doxology. And here's what he's saying. For yours, and this is how, how Jesus wants us to end our prayer. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Amen. You know what that's saying in a nutshell? It's all about God. Every need that we have, every desire of our heart, everything that we, that we can bring before him, we know that it is fulfilled and accomplished in God alone. We are declaring to God, it's all about your kingdom above my own. Whatever happens here, happens here. But your kingdom will not fade. Your kingdom will not be shaken. And that's the kingdom that I want to be a part of. It's all about your power in my life. It's all about what you can do in my life, not what I can do for myself. But it's all about your presence in my life. And then we are confessing to him, listen, I'm powerless for, for even bread. I don't even have enough power in my life to get my daily bread. But you are all powerful. That's what you're declaring in that doxology. And they were expressing to him that we want everything in our lives, everything in our lives to bring him glory and to reflect his glory to the world around us. That's how God wants us to end our prayers. To him. So here's, here's what we see. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. It begins with God and it ends with God. 
and he's everywhere in the middle. Amen. Amen. Man, what, what will that do to our prayer life if we begin to pray that? So, so here's what we're doing. And this is the end of our study of the Lord's Prayer. So here's what my challenge is for us. If you have not started to pray in this pattern of the Lord's Prayer, I'd encourage you to start doing this. Tomorrow morning, get up in time to start, start praying this way. And here's, here's how you do it. You start by confessing and acknowledging who you're praying to. Understand, get in your mind who God is. Declare to Him, you are holy, you are sovereign, but you are also my daddy. Abba, Father. And next, focus your heart on what is really important, the kingdom. Focus your mind on His kingdom. Not on your own little kingdom, but on the kingdom of heaven where He reigns. And ask God to make His will known to you and give you a heart that desires to do that will above your own. And how, how many of us, and here's what I've noticed, when I begin to, to do that, by this point in the prayer, a lot of times I've forgotten what I was even going to pray about. <laughs> so a lot of that is taken care of when I pray, your kingdom come, your will be done. And so I tell you, it's a great thing to be able to pray, God, I just want your will to be done. Because then I don't have to worry about figuring out mine and making sure it works. And God, just do your will in me. Mm. Then he tells us we can make our requests for provisions, right? And we acknowledge, first of all, we live in America. We thank him Amen. that uh, we don't have to depend on him for daily bread. It's more like monthly bread, weekly bread, right? Thank you, Father, that I have food in my refrigerator. But I acknowledge that you were the one that allowed it to be there. You gave me the strength. You gave me the breath to do it. Express gratitude for his goodness. And then we ask him, forgive us of our sins, Lord. As we are able to forgive those who sinned against us. Not because we have it within ourselves, but because we realize how much we've been forgiven. And then we pray that God would protect us from looking at the tests and the trials that he allows that he brings into our lives and that we would look at them and become defeated by them and therefore sin. That we would look at those trials as an opportunity for his power to work in us. And then finally we end it. We end our prayer by declaring that God is the source and sustainer of all those things. And it's only through him that we're able to live and move and we desire for his kingdom to reign. And let me ask you something. You think God would answer a prayer like that? And maybe here's a better question. Why wouldn't that kind of praying completely change our lives? We started this, this section on the Lord's Prayer, and I, I asked us this question. You ever feel like your prayers don't get past the ceiling? You ever feel like you're just kind of beating, beating your head against the wall sometimes? You feel like your prayers aren't going anywhere, aren't accomplishing anything? I think a lot of it is because we don't pray this way. We pray me, 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 me. And Jesus has said, here's how you pray. It starts with God. It ends with God. And everything in the middle comes through God. And that'll change your life. And so what if the church began to pray that way? Don't build my little kingdom, but Father, help me to become a part of your kingdom. What if we begin to pray first, God, give me the desire to see you move through my praying. I don't want to pray for things that are going to affect me. I want to pray for things that are going to affect your kingdom. And, and watch him change your heart and your perspective as this prayer is supposed to do. I believe that when that happens, man, we, we are going to be amazed and transformed at our prayer life. Um. The old guys, call them the old dead guys. The old dead guys knew the power of prayer. Paul, Paul lived in the power of prayer. So much so that he wouldn't make a decision unless he prayed. And when he prayed and God told him to go somewhere else, he changed his direction. And so my question is this, man, do we live that way? Do we live in such a way that we say, I will not move 
I will not make a step until I have heard from God. And in whatever God says for me to do, I don't care how uncomfortable it makes me. I don't care where I have to go. I will do it. Amen. Folks, that is a prayer life that affects great change. Hey, Paul knew when God stopped him, when Satan was stopping him. That's right. That's right. So I think the point in, in, this, in this prayer, uh, this study on prayer, is one thing is that prayer is not meant to be confusing. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've said amen and been more confused than when I started. <laughs> Prayer's not meant to be confusing, but we have to pray it the right way. Let's pray. God, we love you. We thank you so much for, um, for loving us enough to give us your word. Lord, for spelling out to us how, how you want us to approach you. And uh, Lord, my prayer for us, God, as we close, is that uh, now we would just do it. Lord, we have the information. Lord, and I just pray that you give us the desire to apply it. Lord, to begin to pray in a manner that doesn't exalt ourselves, that doesn't put our needs at the head of the line, but Lord, that, um, a prayer life, God, that is completely saturated with you and your will and your kingdom. God, forgive us, Lord. We have taken our blessings as American Christians and we have... Um, turns you into a genie to where we think that we can just ask you and you'll give us everything that comes to our mind on a whim and that you're obligated to do so. And Lord, in reality, we're just, we're building our own little empires, our own little kingdoms that will, um, that will fall. Lord, help us see that there is life, there is fulfillment, there is power in a prayer life that is all surrounded and centered on you. And so, Lord, that's my prayer for us, is that we would become men and women, followers of Christ, who pray your will be done, your kingdom come. And, Lord, when we hear what that will is and how you want us to be used in the kingdom, Lord, that we will not hesitate, but, Lord, that we will go where you tell us to go, we will do what you tell us to do, that our, our praying and our actions Lord, would be in response to how you're leading. So, Lord, may that be so. And may you accomplish everything that you desire for your church, Lord, through us as we seek you in prayer. Lord, we thank you again for who you are. We thank you for Jesus that makes all this possible. Lord, that we can even bow before you because, Lord, he has made a way for us to come. And so, Father, we just pray these things in his precious and holy and good name. Amen. Amen.